This is Ag Bioscience. Welcome and thanks for joining. I'm Mitch Frazier, President and CEO of Agrinovus Indiana. This is the podcast where we explore all things Ag Bioscience, the people, the products and innovations across food, animal health, plant science and ag tech. Ag Bioscience companies attracted more than 50 billion in venture capital globally in 2021, but venture isn't the only source of funding fueling innovation. Private equity and debt are also flowing into the ag bioscience economy as investors seek new avenues to deliver returns and advance innovation. These financial instruments serve a vital role in the ag bioscience economy, but they may be changing as interest rates rise and the broader tech economy cools. Joining us today to share more about the role of venture, private equity, and debt are three financial experts and active investors. Welcome Patrick Gilbert with private equity firm Vine Capital, Randall Lewis with Chicago-based venture capital firm Cleveland Avenue, and Steve Witkes, a longtime lender and debt expert with Farm Credit Mid-America. Patrick, Randall, Steve, welcome to Ag Bioscience. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Oh, this is going to be fun, gents. Access to the diverse sources of capital, really a mystery, I think, for many entrepreneurs and even big companies alike. Randall, I want to start with you. You've been a banker, deep experience in debt, now a venture capitalist. You're employing an entirely different financial instrument in VC than you did in your prior life. Share with us more about your story, Cleveland Avenue, and the unique role you see venture playing in advancing ag bioscience companies. Uh, sure. And uh, thank you, Mitch, for having me. It's uh, a pleasure uh, to participate in this morning's uh, podcast with you, Patrick uh, and Steve. And also, I got to say this to you, Mitch, and, and your team. Thank you for all that you do uh, you. to serve as an advocate for the state in this area of ag biosciences. So, so thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, my story, uh, this will be short, um, but my story is, uh, I'm, I'm proud to say uh, I'm a native of Indiana. Uh, native of Indiana, went to school here, uh, both undergrad and grad at Purdue in accounting and, and finance, and spent 25 years of, uh, of my career in Fortune 200 companies. Uh, one of the capacities in, in which I served in while with those companies was an M&A. Mm -hmm. uh, so always uh, interested in building and supporting organizations uh, in that way. Uh, made a shift after that uh, time period and start working on entrepreneurial ventures as well as assisting entrepreneurs. Uh, the last three years, uh, I've been with Cleveland Avenue, a venture capital firm that's headquartered in Chicago, uh, was founded uh, by Don Thompson. Uh, Don, uh, also a Purdue grad, uh, went to high school here in Indianapolis. And uh, Don was also the former CEO of McDonald's about three CEOs ago. Uh, Cleveland Avenue deploys capital through four funds. Uh, two of those funds are uh, investments in agri-fund companies. One uh, of the funds is a technology company focused on lifestyle uh, technologies. And then the final uh, is a fund that's targeted at those communities, I would say, that are underserved. Those individuals being people of color, as well as women founders 
who are in search of VC capital. So those are the funds uh, that we have. Uh, this year, we will deploy over $100 million, uh, wow. in capital uh, this year. And we'll, we're, we're glad about that. We feel that uh, VC serves a very important role where it basically bridges, I'll call it the gap, between sources of funds for innovation and call it traditional financing, uh, which is generally uh, a lot less expensive. But at that time, there are a lot more knowns than unknowns uh, in which we support from a VC perspective. Uh, you had mentioned the type of instruments uh, that we deploy, uh, Mitch, as well. Capital is generally in the form of a convertible note instrument. Uh, that note would then convert into a preferred equity security, as well as preferred uh, equity itself. Uh, those structures, uh, you know, provide us the appropriate protections and upside sharing necessary to meet our return requirements. Really helpful, Randall. And I think there's there's more to dig into currently, given the environment that we're seeing globally as rates rise and other things become of challenge to both investors and to companies alike. And Patrick, I want to come to you. You too have had a deep experience in M&A. You've done quite a bit of work now at private equity firm Vine Capital. Share more about your story, more about Vine Capital, and where do you see private equity's unique role in advancing food and ag bioscience companies? Yeah, thanks, Mitch. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you, Randall and Steve, today, and have the opportunity to, to dialogue and, and learn from you guys. Um, you know, as we think about backgrounds and kind of where, where we end up in terms of the work we do, I always like to say that today's burden uh, often becomes tomorrow's vision. Today's burden often becomes tomorrow's vision. And, and I say that because we really ought to pay attention to the type of problems that trouble us today because it gives us indication of the type of things that we'll be working on tomorrow. And when I think about my background, that, that's certainly the case. I, I have a traditional accounting and finance background as well. And early in my career, I had the opportunity to work on large public transactions. And the one thing I learned pretty quickly about public transactions is that the deal uh, terms and the price are, are often set long before the accountants and the consultants come in to, <laughs> to do any work. And, uh, you know, for somebody that's early in their career, that, that can be pretty frustrating. But it's predominantly because the deal information is mostly um, uh, transparent at the public company level, and those deals are done uh, for the synergies that they're perceived to, to produce. So over time, I began to gravitate more towards the lower middle market, and I began to work more with um, private equity companies who are buying family-owned, founder-owned businesses with, let's say, revenues of $250 million uh, and below. And unlike public company transactions where information is, is pretty transparent, in the lower middle market, deal information is pretty, pretty opaque. And that creates an opportunity or, or a challenge, I guess, depending on uh, which side of the transaction you're on. But instead of really confirming information that I was doing at the uh, public company level, I began to learn how to create information that the buyer uh, wanted to know but didn't. And in many instances, what I was doing was creating informational arbitrage. 
I was quantifying information for the buyer that maybe the seller only knew by instinct. And then I would give that information over to the buyer and, you know, they would use that to, to, to negotiate the best deal. And so you do that enough times. And I thought, well, gee, I, I think maybe more of this value ought to stay uh, with the seller. And so I began to work more with um, owners ahead of transactions to help them enhance the value of their companies um, so that they could you know, retain more of that value. And so working in between the buyers and the sellers really provided me a unique perspective. And it created in me some really deep convictions around what is true value and how traditional private equity creates it. And I began to sense that while traditional private equity does a lot of things really well, there are some significant shortcomings. So, for example, when you think about traditional private equity, they're, they're taking institutional capital money from you know, insurance companies and pension funds, and they're deploying that and, um, and creating value in a relatively short period of time in order to provide a return back to those investors. And what I observed is that these actions sometimes didn't always optimize the long-term value of the business. And so it seemed to me that, you know, maybe a more flexible uh, private capital model would be best to optimize businesses, at least in the long term. So I say that because that was my burden and Vine Capital kind of became my vision. I was hired on to, to help form Vine Capital and, you know, Vine Capital is a discrete family office. So unlike a traditional PE that raises capital through those institutional investors, the form of our capital is, is private. And there are really kind of three things that distinguish us. One, we are sector focused. So we only invest in food and agriculture related companies, typically between about one to 20 million in EBITDA. The second thing is that we're flexible in terms of our capital structure, which allows us to customize solutions for owners. So where traditional private equity does the control and the buyout deals, we'll do some of that. But we also do growth capital and minority investing as well. And then the third thing that that leads into is that we're very active and we're highly consultative. You know, we talk about that investing is a deeply human endeavor and it's important to not only align with the business, but also to align with the owners and the management teams. So uh, that's, that's my background. That's a little bit about Vine. You know, as we think about the role of, of private equity in general, as it relates to the food and, and ag bioscience sectors, you know, I would say that we have to look first at the problem and then what solution private equity offers. So look at the problem and the solution that private equity offers. And so uh, in the food ag, ag bioscience sectors, you know, the challenge we have before us is a changing supply uh, demand and, and dy dynamic. Um, depending on who you ask, we have an estimate that the world population grows to 10 billion by 2050. And that's going to create uh, a need for additional demand on food up to 60 to 100 percent. So we have this growing demand, but we also have the challenge of limited supply. And the food supply chain is bound by certain natural resource limitations. So the question becomes, how do we not only produce more food, but how do we do so more efficiently? And so I think that's where private equity really has an opportunity, because what private equity does really well is it forces or it creates capital efficient decision making. 
So capital efficiency, right? It's the means by, by which we determine how to allocate limited resources. And so, you know, as I take a look at things, I, I think that that's the reason today we're seeing more uh, private equity dollars flowing into the sector. And I think to, to answer your question, I, I believe it's really the contribution that the private equity is going to make in, in fueling the growth of these sectors as well. Really helpful, Patrick, and capital efficiency really becoming paramount uh, across all the sectors of the economy. Eager to spend some more time on that. Steve, I want to come to you. You are a longtime farm credit lender. You've worked with farmers. You've worked with big publicly traded companies in the ag bioscience sector. If you would give us a little bit of background on you, the role that farm credit plays specifically around traditional lending or debt and maybe how you see that advancing innovation in ag bioscience. Yeah, well, again, uh, I want to thank you too, Mitch, for everything you do. And it's, it's an honor to be on, on this podcast panel here, although after listening to Randall and Patrick, I'm like, oh my gosh, uh, I should have went first. But uh, <laughs> yeah, as Mitch said, I, I will have been with uh, the farm credit system come 37 years uh, next month. So I've had a long uh, history with the organization. I'm originally from Illinois. Uh, born and raised in a small or, you know, at the time was a decent sized grain livestock farm and uh, still have ties back there today. Um, most of my career has been working with Illinois, the Farm Credit Association in Illinois. I joined the team here in Indiana. Uh, it'll be four years coming up here in a couple of months. And in my current role, I'm the senior vice president of lending for Indiana. Uh, which means I basically lead the, the state team here in, in Indiana. And, you know, our organization is, uh, uh, you know, if, if you're not familiar with the farm credit system, we're nationwide and the system is made up of uh, district banks and then uh, associations. And we are the second largest uh, farm credit association in the nation. Uh, we have about 35 billion in assets. And, uh, you know, our delivery is anywhere from the retail branch teams that I lead uh, the, in predominantly, we're working with investors and traditional farmers. Uh, we have a middle markets team that works with, you know, those uh, segments that, you know, Patrick, you kind of talked to the, you know, the 20 million type uh, investments and what have you. And then we have a food and agribusiness team. And, and Mitch, that's where most of our exposure probably gets at the highest level with the large companies. And my experience with working with them has really just been uh, knowledge based just because I'm a part of the company more than directly working with them. So most of my experience over the years has been working with our traditional farmers. And when I think about where do we fit in this whole thing, I think it's all about, you know, how we work with our farmers to, uh, you know, to uh, take advantage of that innovation that's being created uh, via whatever means uh, that capital to uh, to get these initiatives off the ground and what have you. So, you know, we're, we're all about ag. Uh, you know, obviously, ag innovation has been alive and well forever. When I when when I was thinking about getting on here this podcast today, just thinking about all the changes that have taken place in just traditional ag uh, since I have joined uh, the organization back in the mid 80s is, is quite phenomenal. Uh, when you look at what they're doing today with, you know, uh, uh, plant uh the knowledge of the plant, the technology is used to know, you know, the health of the plants and, and the placement of chemical and fertilizer and, and the timing of it. And, you know, they're just the technology is really fascinating uh, what's going on with within uh, what I consider just traditional agriculture. And so I think the people I work with predominantly are consumers of uh, that, that innovation that is funded, I think, in large part by uh, organizations like Randall and Patrick. So it's you know great to be here and and uh, um, you know a pleasure to be a part of Agrinovus as well. Oh, Steve, thank you and thanks for your support. I think the you representing the end user, 
right? The, the idea of the farmer where actual point of production happens. Patrick, you talk a lot about capital efficiency. And Randall, you've offered a couple different views. I want to dig into venture. I think venture is one of those pieces that is often looked to as the go-to source of capital for high growth, high opportunity startups, whether they're in field, whether they're a food component. The challenge is with inflation, again, higher than we would like to see it. Interest rates continue to rise. We see a turbulent global environment, a cooling tech sector, lots of layoffs of late. What's the right financial instrument for companies to fuel growth? And, and I don't care who takes it. Who, whoever wants to jump on that one first, take it and run. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a quick shot on that. Um, Perfect. You know, all the things you mentioned that's going on now with the macroeconomic climate, it, you made it sound almost like it's a real downer, Mitch. It, it, it's, 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 it's challenging, but there, there, there's a lot of uh, there, there are a lot of positive things going on out there. I, uh, I I say that jokingly, but but it's one of the things that really get me excited about what I do. Um, I joined Cleveland Avenue just before the pandemic. And one of the uplifting things in such a turbulent time period was the fact that you still had all these great ideas and innovation uh, being basically put forward when things were really, really bad. So I, I say that jokingly to you, Mitch, but but there is a, there, there are some good things happening out there. And I think the answer to your question, what's the right instrument? It's gonna depend a lot on the company. It, it, it's gonna depend on the company that's seeking the capital. It's gonna have a lot to do with that company's capacity for debt. It's going to have a lot to do with what's that company's, I'll say, attitudes and preference around dilution when you start thinking about equity uh, solutions. I would tend to think that uh, the more predictable and stable you have positive cash flow, that tends to lend itself more to debt. Uh, than it would equity. But I would also say that the answer doesn't have to necessarily be an either or uh, at the same time. Um, so that's how I respond to that question, Mitch. Love it. Patrick? Yeah, I'd say, listen, I think uncertainty always drives the source of capital, right? Uncertainty mm. is always going to drive the source of capital. And, you know, listen, if you start from a purely theoretical perspective, right? Where there's no uncertainty, you know, the optimal capital structure is going to be one which minimizes your combined cost of debt and equity. And so, um, you know, your, your cost of capital declines as, as you employ lower cost of debt in proportion to your, to your equity. And then once you achieve that optimal balance, uh, any additional debt that you, you put on actually increases your cost of capital because the additional financial leverage, but like that's in theory, Right. So in practice, there's a lot of uncertainty, which, again, always drives the source of capital. So, you know, the question is, what's that mean? I, I think it means that the right financial instrument, to, to Randall's point, is dictated by macro and micro risk factors in your business. And, you know, those those risk factors are distributed differently 
across the continuum based on the size and risk profile of your business. And so as you think about venture and early stage and emerging type companies, there's a lot of uncertainty about growth and market and competition, but there's also a lot of execution risk, which requires more proactive involvement. And so the higher the uncertainty, the more you'll, you'll lean towards, towards equity because your capital structure has to acknowledge those, those basic risks. But, but as you move more towards the right of the continuum into uh, the lower middle market, you have less execution-based risk and you have more micro-driven risks. And I think, again, to Randall's point, as a result, larger companies lend themselves more easily to debt financing because of the stable cash flows. Um, but here's kind of what I see happening just from, you know, just a general PE perspective. I think we've always had certain levels of risk through, throughout the continuum, but I think the, the greater uncertainty that's, that's happening at the macro level um, is, you know, is causing some different things to happen in, in PE, you know, as interest rates go up, valuations go down, and it puts a lot more pressure on private equity buyers to really find ways to add value because they simply can't generate the financial returns that they're used to because of the higher cost of debt. And so when you look at, at trying to answer the question about what the optimal financial instrument is, well, it, it depends upon those factors. But what I will say is that in times of greater uncertainty, we're going to see a need for more equity-based financing and the corresponding need for more proactive involvement from investors. Makes a lot of sense. Steve, thoughts on debt? Yeah, you know, as I'm listening to Patrick talk about uh, the uncertainty, that's something that I think is is always in play, at least from our perspective. The more uncertainty, the more um, the more challenging it is to to uh, place that debt, uh, you know, from that standpoint. And so, you know, obviously, uh, farm credit, we don't get into private equity, venture capital and those type of things. So, you know, debt to Randall's point, you know, interest rates are up. There's no doubt they are. Uh, we've got a generation ahead of us that are in, that we're dealing with right now that really have not experienced the, these kind of interest rates. And historically speaking, they're, they're really uh, not out of line at this point in time. But uh, compared to where we've been the last 10 to 15 years, they certainly are. But, you know, we, like I say, we, at least in my role in my team, um, you know, and in investing in uh, innovations that are created by uh, private equity venture that trickle down to our customers, uh, we're going to be better positioned to always do that. The, the less certainty there is within a borrower's ability to make those investments, and and we still got a ways to go in our industry on really uh, uh, elevating our game when it comes to to overall quality financial statements because the capital demands continue to soar, as everybody knows, and. You know, when you invest more, you get more risk involved. And so, um, you know, the debt market right now is is very um, uh, it, it's it's strong. Right. I mean, there is there's a lot of demand. There's a lot of lenders like they're out of ourselves that are there that are wanting to be in this game yet. Uh, in agriculture sure. and agribias. So, so supply of debt is not an issue um, at this point in time. I think your point on market attractiveness, Steve, is one that's that I think it's really important for us to dig into because as we look at the most macro, we see a lot of, of volume of dollars, a lot of volume of interest really coming into the food and ag bioscience space, really as, as companies, and I would even argue funds, search new ways to try to meet environmental commitments to whether it's ESG, whether it's a simple focus on sustainability. What are y'all seeing from companies today? Are, are you seeing 
this this desire for capital really being met with efficiency and in, in, in a world where things are really tough that, you know, those companies who are capital efficient, Patrick, to your point earlier, are, are really emerging as the breakaways. Are we seeing companies still continuing to really put fuel on the fire, really say, hey, look, we're not focused on profitability today. We're focused on growth and growth only. Give us an idea of what you're seeing from companies on deal flow on your fronts, please. Yeah, I mean, I think as, as you think about um, sustainability as it relates to, you know, your question of what are what are companies doing and is, is sustainability, how is it playing out? I, you know, I think from my perspective, sustainability really only works if it's driving innovation, which leads to more efficient use of resources. Okay. And so I... I see companies that that are, are still trying to kind of figure out how to best approach sustainability, especially as it, it, it you know, is it, it 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 becomes a core tenet to their business model. Mm-hmm. And so as as we think about large companies, they've they've driven a lot of this and it's starting to factor in and trickle down to these lower middle market companies. And so when I look at companies in terms of, of deal flow and, and how they're they're talking about sustainability, I, I'm really seeing two different things. I see some companies that, you know, maybe more, uh, you know, to your point on, on the aggressive end, which kind of use sustainability maybe only as a marketing theme. And they're trying to figure out kind of how to integrate it in, into being a core principle of their business model. But it's really uncertain how they're translating the actual benefits into areas of cost and, and, and reduction and quality and speed to market. Now, I think certainly for those companies that I see that, that can translate those commitments into more efficient use of resources and, and translate that into the economics, then that's clearly a differentiator. And those are the type of companies that, that we're interested in. But on the other hand, I see and I work with a lot of more established companies that are really trying to struggle to figure out how to make the changes to that are necessary to, to stay relevant. And you could think about these companies being you know, a little bit more on the conservative end. And I'd say this is where a transition of ownership and capital partnership can be valuable to reset the future of the company based on innovation. Because, I mean, I think in the end, you know, disruptive innovation is going to come, you know, in Randall's space. It's going to come out of the early stage. And sustaining innovation, which is an evolution of existing systems, is likely come out, coming out of the later stage. But, you know, for me, the sustainability and the purpose in terms of what we see really goes back to your point about uh, capital efficiency and decision making. And for those companies that can lead with those sustainable commitments and translate them into actual cost savings and market capture, uh, there's, there's opportunity. But I think the key here is to, is to strike the balance between the two. I, I think that's, that's very well said, uh, uh, Patrick. I, I think uh, one of the byproducts of the economic environment that we operate in today, we talked about rising interest rates, its impact on, on valuations, it's taking companies longer periods of time to raise capital. The very nature of that fact is causing companies to strike, to Patrick's point, a better balance between top line growth and profitability. And what we're seeing is a a lot of companies who might've been closer to the grow at any cost now have kind of 
leveled that out a little bit and they focus more on becoming a lot more profitable sooner uh, in that company's life cycle. And that latter uh, reaction in today's marketplace, along with this idea around purpose, sustainability, and food, it's those together that's really selling in the market today. Super helpful. Steve, thoughts? The only thing I would add, I mean, I, I think our industry is, uh, you know, we're not perfect, but we are tremendous stewards of the resources that we have in this great country. And, and you know, sustainability and, and environmental uh, environmental impact are all, I think, uh, things that, that actually I believe our industry does quite well. Um, and, you know, I think there's an interest and, and we see that as something to be a partner with too. And, and, in uh, taking part in, in promoting uh, advances in technology and those type of things, but there has to be an economic benefit in the end to uh, to deploy these. Um, uh, you know, otherwise they just simply will not work. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, I know uh, a friend of ours, Patrick uh, Jeff Simmons, often talks about the first step in sustainability is profitability. Right? Without a profitable company, you can't advanced sustainability. You simply don't have a company. And I, I think that's very well said. Last question, rapid fire round for all of you. Randall, I'm going to start with you. What's the one thing you want entrepreneurs and executives to know about capital? And then bonus, how can they get in touch with you? Steve actually said that earlier, said it made a point earlier that capital is available and it is. Uh, so that's the point that I would make uh, to entrepreneurs. And uh, if you want to contact me, I'm on LinkedIn. Well done, Patrick. Yeah, I think there's a practical nature when you're when you're out looking for for capital. You un- have to understand your own risk and where you are on the continuum. I think that's really important. But I think on more of a personal note, I, I'd encourage you know entrepreneurs and executives to to think about value not only in terms of economic value but also personal value. And, you know, economic value is one thing to quantify, but when you think about personal value, that's a little bit harder and it requires evaluating yourself as much as your business. And, and I think in the end, you'll, you'll need to do both. And uh, the process of sourcing capital is obviously challenging, but if you do that hard work of quantifying personal value and what that means to you and your other stakeholders, you're going to put yourself in a, in a better position for, uh, for future success. So um, in terms of getting hold of me, you can go to our website, uh, mindcp.com. You'll find my email address there, which is patrick at mindcp.com. And feel free to reach out to me. I'd, I'd find it personally fulfilling, helping, helping however I can. Excellent. Patrick, thank you so much. Steve, wrap us up. Well, you know, I am going to go back to two things. And I tell this to our customers all the time. Uh, when you're looking to source debt, um, being an organization like ourselves, the more you can limit the unknown and limit the uncertainty, uh, the more comfortable you are going to be working with a lender. And so it's all about really having your house in order when it comes to financials, understanding your strengths and weaknesses. Uh, quality financials are really critical to know uh, historical profitability and the and the capacity an organization has to uh, you know take on additional debt and, and that type of thing. So that historical perspective of um, of uh, strong earnings or not necessarily strong, but strong quality financials is really critical. So um, always be prepared where it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's changed so much. And again, I said, capital has become such a big part of this industry. Um, 
we got to know our we got to we got to know our p's and q's so um and as far as contacting me uh i like randall i'm on linkedin and uh pretty active on linkedin so um that would be the best way to get hold of me terrific well patrick steve randall thank you so much for spending time with us today appreciate it thank you pleasure enjoyed it take care you too. And thank you for tuning in to Ag Bioscience. You can get the latest Ag Bioscience news and insights from discussions just like this by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. While there, you can access our entire library of archived episodes and give us a review. Don't forget, you can learn more online at agronovusindiana.com. On behalf of the entire Agronovus team, I'm Mitch Frazier saying thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you real soon. This podcast is a product of Agronovus Indiana in collaboration with Inside Indiana Business. Hosted by Mitch Frazier. Produced by Kayla Chittister and Fabian Rodriguez. Photography by Kaylee Kerr. To get all ag bioscience news all the time, visit agronovusindiana.com.